Well, thank you, Pastor Mark. It's a, always a privilege to be invited, and I appreciate the opportunity. Open our Father's Word, if you would, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, I would proclaim to you, He is risen. That was weak. I don't think you really believe that. (laughs) And the question that I would have for you this morning is, how would you defend your faith to somebody who does not really believe that? I mean, think about what you just said, some of you. He's risen indeed. Kind of an incredible story, isn't it? Now, it's the proper thing to say on Sunday morning when some guest preacher comes and says he's risen and you're trying to be kind. But on Tuesday night, have you ever had some doubts? Have you ever really thought about what, what, what if this isn't true? And, and why do I really believe? And, and Scripture talks about we're going to have a resurrected body. Well, I've got some questions about that. What's that going to look like? I mean, do I get to put in my order for what my new body's going to look like? Because if I do, I'd like a shorter nose, Lord. That would be nice. And if I could have my hair back, that would be wonderful too. I mean, when I get into conversation with a lot of Christians and I ask about the person of Christ and the resurrection, I can usually get about three or four questions in And I'll have them doubting. Because the defense of our faith is something that, well, a lot of us just believe because we've been told. So is it kind of like Greek mythology? If you tell the story enough, it just sort of comes alive and and you sort of start believing it? Or urban legend, you know? Some people actually believe that there is a Bigfoot because we've told the story enough. So this morning, let's look at this idea of, has he really risen? First of all, we have to be able to defend the historicity of Jesus Christ. I have a a Jewish friend that I have been spending time with over the past five years. And we'll call him Bob because his name is Bob. (laughs) And Bob says, well... You know, there's really question as to whether the person of Jesus really existed. In other words, he believes it's just urban legend. And and that's very convenient. If you just say, well, I I don't think that, that he really existed, that's a very convenient way to kind of argue away the whole Christian faith. And we can't argue from Scripture because those who don't believe would say that that book that you're holding, that I asked you to open, uh, you know, that that's just all made up as well. So how do we defend our faith from history? Well, let's look at some of the historians. That'd be, yeah. So there are four historians that I'm going to refer to this morning. Uh, there are many others. But I'm referring to these four because I want to look at both the Jewish and and, and the Greek side of it. Flavius Josephus was uh, one of the greatest 
and well-known first century A.D. historians. He wrote a very large work called Antiquities. Jewish, not a believer in Christianity. But Josephus would say in his non-Christian literature, yes, the person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, did walk this earth. That's a pretty credible uh, argument. Let's go, to the, uh, let's go to the Greek side. If you look at uh, Tacitus, who was one of the greatest Roman, not only historians, but also scholars, he writes in his work, not only did Jesus exist, but he also writes and talks about the crucifixion in his historical work. He also talks about uh, Pontius Pilate and the whole trial. So if we look at antiquities, if we look at ancients, they would say, oh yes, absolutely Jesus walked this earth. Let's look at some of the more modern scholars. For instance, Bart Ehrman, who's a secular agnostic, again, not a believer even in God, writes this regarding Christ. He says, he certainly existed as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian agrees. Or Michael Grant, who's a classicist. He says this, In recent years, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few, and they've not succeeded in disposing the much stronger, indeed very abundant, evidence to the contrary. So I think we can quickly, even though you may not have done the study, we can quickly support the idea of, well, yes, there was a person named Jesus from Nazareth who existed, and at least the things that others say he did, he, there is that historicity. So now at issue is the resurrection. And even Scripture points out the idea that Christians in the first century A.D., there was some doubt regarding that. There's this guy called Paul, who is from uh, Tarsus, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. We call him the Apostle Paul. And he writes this to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 16. He says this, if the dead are not raised, and, and, and he's making an argument against the resurrection here for those who are saying, we don't believe the resurrection. It's just a story. He says, if the dead are not raised, well then, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sin. Then, those also who've fallen asleep in Christ, and when he says fallen asleep, that's, that's a euphemism. It's not fallen asleep like some of you are doing right now while I'm talking. It's, it's a euphemism for dead. Those who are dead in Christ have also perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, the resurrection didn't happen, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. So, even Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth in what we call Holy Scripture, is saying, I realize there are some of you who don't believe. 
So, so let's look at the philosophy of the world in the first century A.D. We'll look first at that of the Greeks, and then we'll look at that of the Jews. The Greeks, the Greek philosophers, do not believe that when we die, there is a resurrection of the body. They believe, some of them, that the soul goes on living. Some of them believe that it does not. So let's look at those three different philosophies. First, those who follow Homer. Now, Homer, in his philosophy, says that when we die, no resurrection of the body, the spirit goes on living to wander for eternity in Hades, which is a bad place. No resurrection of the body. Then there are the Epicureans. The Epicureans believe in what's called annihilism, and that is a popular philosophy among unbelievers today as well. Annihilism basically says, when you die, that's it. No body, no soul. And so the Epicureans' basic philosophy boiled down is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. In other words, enjoy life, because after life on this earth, nothing. And then there are the, those who follow Plato. Those that follow Plato, Plato is a bit like Homer with a twist. Plato would say, like Homer does, yes, the soul goes on living in Hades for eternity, but, he, but Hades is not a bad place. It's a good place. Because the soul goes on living for eternity, wandering about Hades to discuss philosophy okay some of you are laughing because you know how boring that would be and you're thinking that's not a good thing there are probably two here who are philosophers there's a reason you have no friends (laughs) have you ever wanted to escape your body I mean, because of pains or aches or sickness. Have you ever been so sick you were afraid you were going to die and then you got sicker and you were afraid you wouldn't die? See, that's where the Greeks are. The Greeks are at the idea of why would you want a resurrected body? Why would you want to go on living in captive in this shell? So that's the Greek philosophy. The Jews had a different philosophy. The Jews concerning the afterlife would say, yes, there is a resurrected body, all but one sect of the Jews. The Sadducees, who were Jews, did not believe in the resurrection. They went along with the Greeks. But the rest of the Jewish belief is the body was created by God. Therefore, it is a good thing. If it was created by God, we're created in the image of God. The Latin term is imago Dei. That's a good thing. But here is their philosophy regarding the resurrection. We will all be resurrected at the same time at the end of time. Because if the body was created by God, it's a good thing not only to be preserved, but also to uh, then be resurrected at the end of time. Here's the problem they have with the resurrection of Christ. It happened at the wrong time in history. It didn't happen at the end, it happened in the middle. And it wasn't everybody, it was just one person, Jesus Christ. So that's why the Jews have a problem with the resurrection. Now I posed the question earlier, have you ever doubted? 
your faith? Have you ever had these times of doubt? And, and uh, I didn't see anybody raise their hand because you're thinking, well, I'm sitting among people who would think that's a bad thing. But if you've ever doubted, you're in good company. And we have a lot of evidence in Scripture of those who doubted. Not only those in Corinth after the death and resurrection of Christ, but even at the time of the death of Christ. Don't, you don't have to turn to Luke chapter 24, but in Luke chapter 24, there's a lot of evidence of those who doubted right at the time of the resurrection of Christ. Think about those who experienced and saw the crucifixion of Christ and the burying of the body. Now, in Jewish tradition, as soon as a body has died, they, they anoint it with oils and spices and so on. That, that's the Jewish tradition. But here it was the problem. Christ was crucified on the afternoon just, be, just before the Sabbath. And in Jewish tradition, you cannot do anything during the Sabbath. You cannot work. You cannot prepare meals. You can't check Facebook. You can't do anything during the Sabbath. So what they did with the body, because the Sabbath was approaching, the sun was setting, they took Christ's body and they put it in a tomb and they rolled a stone over the tomb with the idea of they would come back after the Sabbath on Sunday morning and they would anoint his body. And that's exactly what the women were doing when they showed up on Sunday morning at the tomb where Christ's body was laid. But many of you know the history of this. They show up at the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and the body is gone. And, and they're thinking, what's happened? And they see two angels sitting on rocks, probably catching up on their Facebook because the Sabbath is over now. And they say, what have you done with his body? And they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And they're going, oh, that, that's pretty incredible. So they go back to the place where most, not all of the disciples are gathered because they're now hiding out. These guys have followed Christ for the last couple of years. They, they'd given up their families. They'd given up their careers. And they're following this Jesus of Nazareth who's uh, uh, particularly in the book of Luke there, there are a lot of miracles and so on, and they think he's the Messiah, and now he's been crucified. They go back to the room where the disciples are, and they say, he, he's not there. He's risen. And they look at the women, and they go, ew, ew. you know, crazy women, uh, obviously been hanging out in Colorado, smoking some of the product. <laughs> they don't believe. Look at Luke chapter 24. There's, there's, a, there's a little bit of a conversation going on there. Later in Luke chapter 24, <laughs> there are a couple of men that are walking along the road to a place called Emmaus. doesn't matter where Emmaus is. It's obviously not Jerusalem. And they're having this discussion of everything that has taken place uh, in, in the past couple of days in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, the, the whole trial that uh, they put Jesus through and the crucifixion of three men, Christ in the middle, and then the burial, and then the fact that uh, 
uh, women show up at the tomb and, and, and the body's missing. They're having this conversation and Jesus joins them in their walk along the road. And he says, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and they say, you're not from around these parts, are you? I mean, because if you'd been, you'd know all of this. And they explain the story, but they don't recognize that it's the risen Christ. And so Christ gets into conversation with him, with them. And by, by the way, the two guys are named Cleopas and the other guy. <laughs> How would you like to be known in Scripture as the other guy? Well, I got a footnote at least, right? We don't know who the other guy is. And they, they're talking to Jesus, and he, begins, he takes them back to the Old Testament prophets. And he begins explaining to them uh, everything that must happen, that a Messiah is going to come. And, and as he explains it to them, they begin to realize, oh. And finally, after the better part of a day, Christ walking along with these guys, explaining all of the Old Testament Scripture to them, they go, you're him, aren't you? They were doubting. They didn't believe that Christ had, had risen, but now they realize, oh, you are the risen Christ. Or how about Thomas? <laughs> we refer to Thomas as Thomas the... How would you like that on your tombstone? How would you like to be known through the rest of history as the doubter? Thomas isn't in the room with the disciples when the women come back and say, he's not there, he's risen. He shows up sometime later. I, I don't know. He, he was, who knows where he was or what he was doing. He shows up sometime later. And he says, this is why we know him as Thomas the doubter. He says to the, to the women and to the disciples, unless I touch the nail prints in his hands and his feet, I will not believe. I love God's sense of humor because at that very moment, Jesus walks into the room. And I, I would have just loved to have gotten a selfie with Thomas and the expression on his face at that time. Like, and Jesus says to him, Thomas, unless you touch and feel, you won't believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. So if there are ever times of doubt, you're in good company. I mean, there are a lot in Scripture who also doubted. And here's the issue in America today. The issue is our American worldview. Our American worldview is we are rationalists in the Western world. We are scientific. Unless it can be empirically proven to us, we don't believe anything. Oh, we, we talk of miracles, certainly. For instance, somebody gets into a horrific auto accident and uh, you look at the car and you say, oh, it was a miracle they survived that. Well, it wasn't a miracle. We can forensically go, well, yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary, but we call the extraordinary a miracle. That, that's not really a miracle. Uh, we don't really believe in the Western world regarding the supernatural so that's why it's a hard thing for western thinkers to believe in the resurrection because it truly is a miracle it is truly something that well it, it couldn't happen unless god made it happen 
Do you know where the statistical geographical center of Christianity is? If you were to take all of the Christians around the globe and you were to map them, you, you, you looked at all of the Christians and then you'd say, okay, well, here's the statistical center of belief on this globe. Some of you would think North America and you would be wrong. The statistical geographical center of Christianity is in a place called Timbuktu. It's in Mali, Africa. In fact, it is the global, it's the southern global half of the world where, Christ, where Christianity, where those who believe in the supernatural more than the northern part, uh, where we see Christianity thriving and growing. If you were to look at all of the continents in, on the globe, where do you think the greatest number of Christians are? Again, some of you would say, well, the North American continent, and again, you would be wrong. It is the European continent. Twice as many Christian believers on the European continent than there are on the North American continent. So, the evidence of the resurrection is what we really need to look at. What is the evidence that we can take to those who are unbelieving in our Western world? I only have time to share about three of them with you this morning. The first one would be the belief of the doubters. That is compelling evidence. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 5. By the way, the document that you're holding, it is a historical document. It is an account of historical events that have taken place covering a couple of millennia. It's discounted by those who don't believe, but it is a historical document. So Paul, in his argument to the church in Corinth, who says, you know, if the resurrection didn't happen, your, your faith is in vain. You're without hope. But he points to the belief of the doubters. He says in verse 5, he appeared, Christ appeared, to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, that euphemism for being dead again. He appeared also to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me as one who is untimely born. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm even unworthy to be called an apostle, Paul says, because I persecuted the church of God. In fact, Paul's original name is Saul. And he was a persecutor of both the Jews as well as particularly the Christians until he had a miraculous revelation from God on the road to Damascus. He, he, was a, he calls himself a Jew of Jews. Uh, there were certain sects of the Jews he couldn't even get along with, but particularly the Christians. So there is the belief of the doubters, the conversion of the doubters. That is one of the evidences we have of the resurrection. Second evidence is we, that we have is the transformation of the culture. What was the accusation that came against those who 
began after the death and resurrection of Christ and, and, and saying, oh, he's risen and they're following Christ and they're starting this whole new movement that we call Christianity. They were written off as having mass delusion. They were, they were all deluded. So let me ask you, what do crazy people do? Well, crazy people, they withdraw from society, they isolate from society, and they attack any who approach them. But what did this mass of believers do? Did they isolate? Did they attack? Did they withdraw? No, they did the exact opposite. They, instead of running away from poverty, ran into poverty. They started, uh, started showing compassion and love for the sick and the elderly and the widows. They did just the opposite of what crazy people do. In fact, they did what even their own culture and society would not do. They nursed the sick during epi epidemics. They took in orphans and widows and the elderly. And the... Does that sound, sound like people who have been deluded? No, it sounds just the opposite. In fact, you wonder, wait a minute, they're doing what we should do, society, and, and why? And their answer would be because of the resurrection. The resurrection changed their entire outlook and philosophy on life. You see, they so much believed that not only did he rise from the dead, but that gives us an eternal hope that it doesn't matter what happens in this life and in this world. In fact, it shows that it, they are people that now show love and compassion. So the second evidence that we have is the transformation, the changed life and attitude and outlook of those who followed Christ. Suddenly they had hope where there was no hope. Suddenly they had joy in a joyless society. The third evidence is the uniqueness of the message. The message of the resurrection is unique from all other prophets, all other religions, all other time. Look at all of the prophets of other religions. None of them offer what Christianity offers. Most, not all, but most other religions say, well, your only hope for eternity is if you live a good enough life. And if you live a good enough life and you do good things, then in eternity, good things will happen to you. Hope it works out for you. <laughs> but no guarantees. Christianity is the only faith that offers a prophet that says, yep, you're a sinner, just like all other religions say. You're not perfect. You've got some problems. But it offers a solution for that. It's kind of a strange, odd faith. I mean, take somebody off the street of Hot Springs and put them in the back row in the second service this morning and let them listen to the quartet singing, Are You Washed in the Blood? What? Washed in what? What are you talking about? You can see where they might have a problem with that. 
There's some explanation that's needed on this. But the explanation is God has given the only sacrifice that is going to restore us to Him. The Christ of Christianity is different from all other prophets because there is no other prophet, no other religion that offers eternal hope. It is only, well, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. And he's talking about the Old Testament. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a lamb. There has to be something that restores us to God. That's what that song that the quartet was singing about this morning is talking about. And he was buried, verse 4. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what? So what? That's the question that I think the resurrection answers. It answers the so what. See, all humans go through life saying, what, what, what if? What if I lose my spouse? What if I get cancer? What if my finances fail? What if my teenage son or daughter runs away? What if, what if, what if, what? We, we live life in fear. But the resurrection turns that on its head. If you really have been transformed by the reality of this message, you don't live in the what if, you live in the even if. Well, even if I lose my spouse, even if I lose my finances, even if, it doesn't matter, I have hope beyond today. I have hope beyond cancer. I have hope beyond any tragedy that's going to happen. And so, if you really believe in the resurrection, your, your whole thinking transforms from fear to hope. Yeah, things are going to go bad in life, but my hope isn't just in this life. And, and suddenly, I don't any longer have to be judgmental of others because I'm not threatened. Instead of being judgmental, I'm going to be gracious. And instead of being selfish, I'm going to be compassionate. I can show love because love has been shown to me. God's so crazy in love with me. He did this for me. And that's going to transform my behavior towards others, not only in my family, but in my culture. So we have hope when life gets impossible. That's what the resurrection does for us. We're given not only a better life, but we're given true life. In fact, I would like you to stand right now and read a confession of faith with me. 1 Corinthians chapter first, uh, verse 20 and following. Read this with me. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's sing our doctrine. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Yes. Let's sing about that.